Now, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it, and he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's offerings. Okay, so a couple of things we want to make a note of right up front. And so you remember in the burnt offering, they would bring an animal, either something from the herd or something from the flock, or they bring a pigeon, and the whole thing would, get, would be burned. It, the entire whole animal would be consumed. And so that was a whole burnt offering to the Lord. It was 100% for the Lord. So here we see a similar concept. It's still an offering and not a sacrifice because it's not an animal. It's bread, okay? And, but what you see is that they're coming with this in this first paragraph. It's unbaked flour, and they're bringing it. And the, the priest reaches in. He takes a handful, and this handful is classified as the memorial portion, okay? That is going to be placed on the altar. It's going to be burned as a food offering, in other words, a pleasing aroma, an offering of worship to the Lord. And then the priest keeps the rest of it, and this becomes their provision. And so when you see uh, holy, it's holy or it's most holy in the book of Leviticus, you should know that it doesn't mean that the grain offering is holier in terms of more important or has more value than the burnt offering. What makes it holy versus most holy is who's allowed to eat it. Okay, and so this is for the priest. It's most holy. It's set aside for Aaron and his sons. So fine flour, similar to chapter one, when we saw you would take an unblemished animal, the unblemished bull, the unblemished um, uh, pigeon, whatever, you know, the unblemished animal. This is the best part of the flour. Okay, and so this is the fine flour. This isn't you know, some cheap flour. This is the best part of the flour, of the uh, grain, after you're done um, threshing it. Similarly, frankincense, and we probably immediately think of the three wise men, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and that's, that's good. See, frankincense was a spice that they would put on, and it, had a, it gave it flavor, but it was also really expensive. Matter of fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 60, Verse 6, you see a prophecy that points to the wise men, and this is what that prophecy said. It said, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those of Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold, frankincense, and good news, the praises of the Lord. And so the point of the frankincense is that this too, this is the, you're bringing your best to the Lord. You don't bring the Lord your leftovers. By the way, this is one of the reasons why were we, and we're not going to right now, but were we to teach on giving, you know, giving in terms of giving of your time, talents, and treasure to the Lord, you don't give God out of your um, leftovers. And so we just were talking with our kids the other day because they have like these Dave Ramsey's save, spend, and give envelopes. Some of you guys are familiar with that. It's for kids. And we are explaining that if you get a certain amount of money, the first thing you do is you put it in the give because that's the pattern throughout the scriptures is that we give from our first fruits. We give of the best of the herd, or the best of the flock. We don't kind of wait to see what's left over after buying Christmas presents. That's not the way that giving has worked in the entire biblical theology, the overview 
of the scriptures, okay? And so they give of the best, the best part of the grain, the best part of their spices, this expensive stuff, even though it's just going, even though it's just going to be burned. And again, similar to chapter one, it says this is a food offering, which it defines as something that has pleasing aroma, it has it gives praise to the Lord. But what's interesting about this is the fact that it's called a memorial portion. And so you could also translate that word as a remembrance offering. And so the idea here is that I come with my, my container of flour and I bring it to the altar and the priest takes a handful of it and he places it on the altar to burn. And this is a sign of a prayer where I'm saying to God, so you can circle the memorial portion and make this note that the idea is to saying, Lord, remember me. That's the whole point of a memorial offering. The point of a memorial offering is to say, Lord, remember me. Remember me, God. An example of this, by the way, would be the thief on the cross. So what does the thief on the cross say? You have Jesus is being crucified between two thieves who are guilty of insurrection, right, In, and, and, and thievery, and they're mocking Jesus. And then before um, they, they die, what happens is that the one thief says to Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I can see, Jesus, that you are Lord and Messiah, and I, and I'm, no, he says, remember me. And what is Jesus' response? He says, I tell you, surely you will be with me in paradise today. Okay? And so the memorial portion is this remembrance offering. It's saying to the Lord, this is the, the point of it, Lord, remember your promises to us. Remember your promises to me. Remember your promises to your people. And so then the priest would burn a portion of that, and then they would take what was left over, which was their food allowance. Instead of owning fields and working in these fields, they got paid as a portion of the offering. Okay? Let's continue in verse 4. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil. So the first paragraph was uncooked, and now we have different types of cooked. It shall be uh, unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces, pour oil on it. It's a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. The priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion. Remember what a memorial portion is. It's a fistful, so no matter what kind of bread they're bringing, he takes a fistful and he burns that on the altar, and it's a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons, okay? And so it's a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. So we have, now we have the baked bread, and there's three types of bread. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Baked in the oven. Maybe some of you have seen a tandoori oven. It looks like, a, it look, kind of looks like a dome, and it's made out of clay. And if you see like Afghan bread, for example, they heat this dome up and then they take the flat bread and they actually put it on the inside and it bakes, right? And kind of like stick it to the inside. So that's the idea of being baked in an oven. This is still used all over the world. Second is in a griddle. What they actually do is on top of that oven, they would place a clay bowl upside down, right? And then they would, they would put oil on it and then they would drape 
the the uh, the bread or the the uh, dough on top of the griddle, so it would make almost like a, like a, a shaped cracker. Okay, and then the third thing is they would put it in a pan, you know, like a Dutch oven, and they bake it. That would be thicker. Okay, and so these are the types of bread they would make. Verse eleven: No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. All right. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you can bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. All right, so this is the first thing we need to sl- slow down on. So basically, God says, no leaven, no honey. They can't be burned. You can bring them as a first fruit offering, but you can't burn them. All right? And so, well, why? Well, the word leaven here comes from ancient Akkadian and it means ferment or sour. So actually, this is technically sourdough starter, okay? And so, the, so God is saying, you cannot bring sourdough starter and put it on my altar. You better not, okay? And no honey either. But we don't really have an explanation of why. And so there's been various potential explanations. Um, I'm just going to run through a couple of these real quickly. One, uh, the ancient Near Eastern people believed that leaven or the sourdough starter actually changed the composition of things. And so, you know, you put leaven in and it, we know that this product happens and, the, leaven, and the, the yeast break down the sugar. Well, they thought that it actually would corrupt things and so maybe it symbolically represented corruption. And some people would point to Jesus saying, well, leaven represents sin, but it doesn't always represent sin. Because remember, Jesus also compared the kingdom of God to leaven. And so we can't just say blanket leaven represents sin. Two, maybe it's because the, le- the yeast was alive. And so you couldn't burn things that were alive. You killed the animal before you burned it. And so maybe that was why. That's one other possible. The third possibility is that both leaven and honey are technically excremental processes. And that would be considered unclean, all right? Kids, you can ask your parents about it. And then the fourth thing is um, yeast and honey, especially honey, were actually quite common in pagan ritual sacrifice. So this is, in my opinion, and I'm not an expert, this is probably the most likely explanation because if you, if you think about the way worship happened in the Old Testament, in the law, it was drastically different, wholly set apart from the way pagans worshiped. An example of that is that there could be no blood in the animals. The animals had to be completely let of their blood before they were sacrificed. All right, that was a stark contrast to the way that sacrifice would happen in pagan uh, ritual. The blood was completely removed. And so the idea here is that the Lord is holy, right? And you worship the Lord as he determines, not as you determine. We're going to see later in Leviticus, when you worship the Lord according to your own desires, what happens? You get killed. That's what happens with Aaron's sons. They get consumed by fire because they worship the Lord in a way that is, in, that is out of line with what he has determined. Okay? Verse 13 is the, is the primary verse of this section. So, all of that has been building up to this point. I know you can't wait. You're just... Oh my goodness, you're so excited. You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt of the covenant. 
Now, listen, when you're reading the scriptures and you read something like that, your immediate response, and now I'm, I'm not sure what it is in every single translation. Some translations have probably taken the liberty of trying to interpret that for you. And so maybe it doesn't even say salt of the covenant, but it says salt of the covenant in, in the Hebrew, and it's a strange term. And so you should underline that, and your immediate thought should be, what on earth is the salt of the covenant? Because if it's unusual, maybe it's important. And indeed it is, because every commentary you read is going to say the salt of the covenant is the main important part of this entire chapter. So notice it says here that all your offerings shall have salt. And that includes all offerings, not just the grain offering, but all offerings. Well, why? Well, you have to realize that there could be a couple things. Again, the purpose of salt in some ways could be the opposite of yeast and honey. Whereas um, honey and yeast are both processes of decay and putrefaction, salt is a preservative. So the yeast would eat the honey and that would speed up the process. But here in a different way, the salt preserves. But there's probably other things going on here as well. You see, because all of this is based upon a covenant. And a covenant, if you've never heard that term, a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. And when God makes a covenant with his people, he's making this unconditional promise, right? He's making this promise with them, and it has consequences, it has terms, and all of these sorts of things, okay? Whenever they would do a covenant, when you study contemporary ancient Near Eastern texts, salt was used in the ceremony. Matter of fact, they would actually throw salt on each other, and it would make the, the covenant agreement binding, okay? And the reason they would throw salt is because uh, if someone violated their treaty, let's pretend that I had a covenant with you, um, and we threw salt on each other, and it got in my eyes, and I was really sad, right? And then I broke, if I broke our covenant, it was a symbol that then you would cover my field in salt, and you would plow the salt into the field. And what do you think would happen with the field? It would be useless. It would be useless for a long time, okay? In other words, you would essentially destroy my livelihood. This is the consequence of me violating the covenant. And so when we see salt here, there's a sense of severity. It makes the covenant agreement binding. So the treaty is violated, the land will be sowed or plowed under with salt, it ruins it, it can no longer be farmed. And so salt is like saying, if I violate this covenant, I'm in trouble. Okay, it's like an object lesson, a visual, so that you can't violate the covenant. But there's also a couple things. When you see this salt of the covenant, when you read the scriptures, you should remember the scriptures aren't a bunch of disconnected stories. And so you look up that phrase and you see how it's used in the rest of the Bible. What's well, only used two other times, and I'll read those two passages. Numbers 18, 19, as you can write that in your little column. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Okay? And then 2 Chronicles 13, 5 he says, ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Now, if you were going to go, he's referring to what's called the Davidic covenant there, which was in 2 Samuel 7, when God makes a promise to David, you will have, your line is going to be the kingly line. 
But here, looking back in 2 Chronicles 13, he looks back at David and that covenant, and he refers to that unconditional, eternal covenant as a covenant of salt. And so the idea here is that covenant of salt refers to something that is eternal, something that is permanent, something that is serious. And so what's the deal? Okay, what's the deal with covenant of salt? It's rooted in the threat of having your land overrun. It's biblically used to describe permanence. And by forcing them to include it in their bread and indeed on all of their sacrifices, it's God reminding them every time they throw the salt in that the relationship and the covenant that they have together is permanent and binding. Okay? So this is the point in the grain offering. The grain offering is what type of offering? A memorial offering. What does memorial mean? Lord, remember me. And what does the salt represent? Permanence. And so if you're going to summarize the grain offering in a sentence, this is the grain offering. The grain offering is a memorial offering where you say to the Lord, remember us. And then as you include the salt in the sacrifice, it's God reminding you, don't worry, I won't. Okay? That's the point of the memorial offering. That's the point of the remembrance offering. That we cry out to God, remember me. And God says, I will. I've not forgotten. And so by them including it every single time they do a sacrifice, God is anticipating the fact that we are fickle human beings who will constantly doubt his word. And he says, don't worry, I see you. Don't worry, I see you. You're in exile and you're still making these things, right? You're, you're looking forward to the time when you can come back to the temple and you can bring those sacrifices. Don't worry, I see you. I remember you. The covenant that we gave is binding. All right? And then he goes through and he talks about if you bring fresh roasted ears of corn or grain rather, and we're going to jump to Leviticus chapter three. And we're only going to read one chapter, one uh, paragraph from Leviticus chapter three, just so you know. So Leviticus chapter three, verse one, he says, if his offering, now it's another type of offering. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering. Okay, it's still not a sacrifice yet. It's a sacrifice of peace offering. It's kind of both, as you're going to see. It's sacrifice and an offering. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. Right? That's the kind of standard we've seen now. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering, and he shall kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and the fat that is on the, where is it? Fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys and Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar, where? On top of the what? Burnt offering, which was chapter one. Now, I know some of you guys are zoning out. Listen, bear with me, okay? Because it's going to be like a haymaker at the end. Just bear with me here. On top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood of the fire, it is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then the rest of the chapter is basically the same, but it talks about animals from the flock and goat instead of from the herd. 
Okay, so unlike the burnt offering, in the, this sacrifice of peace offering, the offerer kills the animal. Remember, we talked about that in the first week. I know some of you guys didn't like that. It wasn't my law. Okay, the offerer killed the animal. The priest didn't kill the animal. The offerer kills the animal, and then they remove the fat and the entrails and all of those kinds of things, and the priest puts it on top of the burnt offering. So the burnt offering is set on the altar. The grain offering is set on the altar, and then they put the fat on top of the burnt offering, and all of this is going to be burned to the Lord. And so what you realize is these are not three separate occasions necessarily, okay? Actually, this is probably quite often happening simultaneously, and you can see maybe now why it's called a food offering, because the fat represents the best part of the animal, right? That's why you can tell yourself whatever you want, but a ribeye tastes better than an eye round, okay? Because it's marbleized, all right? And that's just the point. But the fat is for the Lord. That's why it says in verse 17, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. You don't eat the fat because it belongs to the Lord, and you don't eat the blood, because the, in the blood is the life. And so what's the point? What's the point of this offering? Like the other offerings, it's a food offering with a pleasing aroma. Okay? Now, so let's step back. Now we're going to get practical. Now we're going to bring it to Jesus. And so if you've been zoning out, um, here we go. If you think about this, in these three chapters, there's no mention of anything negative. What I mean is that this, these offerings are not about sin. These aren't about sin. There's no mention here of you got to bring that bread and then Jesus will forgive you. No, that's not the point of it. These aren't about sin. These are about worship and thanksgiving. These three offerings are entirely about that. This isn't about, it's called the peace offering, not because this is how you get peace with God. It's called the peace offering because this is about celebrating the covenantal peace that they already have with God because of the covenant he gave at Mount Sinai when he spoke with Moses. Okay? Now, follow me. Leviticus chapter 1, burnt offering. You could summarize the entire burnt offering as this. I want to approach God, and I hope he will accept me. Right? So in the burnt offering, I bring my bull to the front of the tent, and I say, I hope the Lord will accept me. And I kill the bull and the priest, and then we skin it, right? And then I, we dice it up, and then we put it, and then the priest puts it on the altar. And then I bring my grain. Now I feel like the Lord has accepted me. Okay, I bring my grain offering. And so how do you summarize the grain offering? I ask God to remember his covenant with me and evidenced by the salt, I have confidence that he will remember me. And so uh, the priest takes a handful, a memorial portion, he puts it on the altar and the priest takes the rest for his own food portion. And then I have my third offering, the sacrifice of peace offering. And this offering is to say, I have peace with God because of the covenant that I remember and he remembers, and so I just want to worship him. I just want to thank him. 
And so this third offering is also, just like the first two, about worship. It's about worshiping God because of our relationship. Hear me out, because this is what everybody gets wrong about religion. It's not about what you need to do in order to make peace with God. That's what false religions will tell you. They'll say, if you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this. And if you can just do those things, then you'll have peace with God. If you can be good enough, if you can be better than the next guy, if you can give to this, if you can give to that, if you can you know, send your kids to CCD or you can do whatever it might be, that's not what the scriptures teach. This is God's work in making us right with him and we receive it by faith. They placed their faith in the covenant and the promise that God had given. They placed their faith in the reality that they had peace with God and that he was going to be faithful to his promise. You see, worshiping God is done because of our relationship with him, not to get a relationship with him. All the while remembering in this salt that the relationship is a privilege and it's done because of his faithfulness. And what we learn that's really interesting is that then, in Leviticus 7 we would see this, is that then the sacrifice of peace offering becomes a communal celebration with the family and the priest. Okay? And so now they celebrate these offerings, the burn offering, the grain offering, and the sacrifice of peace offering by sitting down right then and having a meal of fellowship together before the Lord with the people, the priest, before God. It's a meal of worship. It's a meal of worship. You know, we make worship so dry and we make it hyper-liturgical and hyper-structured, literally, they are celebrating before the Lord by enjoying a meal together. And what are they celebrating? Leviticus 1, they're celebrating that they've been accepted. Leviticus 2, they're celebrating that they have sure and steady promises from God. Leviticus 3, they're celebrating that they have peace with him. See, this isn't about forgiveness yet. This is just about worship. It's about thankfulness. It's about celebration because of a good and faithful God who has an enduring covenant of salt. So these offerings almost look like preparing a banquet for God. We bring him the burnt offering. We bring him the grain offering. We bring him the fat offering from the sacrifice of peace offering. And the worshiper then, God has his main course and the worshiper has their course, and then we eat together. Of course, the scriptures make clear God actually isn't eating any of this. That's what it represents. So what is this, how does this look to Jesus? Fellowship at the Lord's table no longer requires an animal sacrifice. See, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, looking back at Leviticus and the law, and in many ways, exegeting those texts through a New Testament, New Covenant lens, Jesus, we learn, his sacrifice was once for all. That it wasn't a continual thing. But this is the question I said to Gina, because this is what it's like being li living with me. Because Hebrew says his sacrifice was once for all. And I said, which sacrifice? Which sacrifice? Well, what you're going to realize is 
Which one do you think it is? You can say it. It's all of them. Christ is hidden in each of these sacrifices and offerings. That all of this is pointing to Christ. This is pictured at the Lord's Supper, that Christ's sacrifice was once for all. The animal, the sacrificial lamb, no longer has to be given. It was a single sacrifice. And now, since the sacrifice is finished, we don't sacrifice an animal. Instead, we just celebrate with what? With the wine and the grain. That's what the Lord's Supper pictures. The animal's been already given. But the purpose remains the same. What's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Is the Lord's Supper taking communion? Or if some of you grew up Catholic, taking Eucharist, is that how you get grace? Is that how you get forgiven? No. And that's a heresy for those who have come to believe that. That is not true. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to celebrate what he has already done. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is rooted in Leviticus chapters 1, 2, and 3, with the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the sacrifice of peace offering. It's about celebrating the work of God, the peace that God has accomplished, communion with God because of what? Because of his enduring covenant, which is why when Jesus gives the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. The cross accomplished all this. Look at Colossians chapter 1, 19 to 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is what we're celebrating in the incarnation, Advent season. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile or make peace to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, in other words, given you peace in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so this should give you a deeper appreciation and understanding of the Lord's Supper, which we just celebrated last week that this is a time of worship and thanksgiving for what God has done. But I also want to point out before we finish here that I think this is exactly what Jesus is referencing in Matthew 5.13, which is one of the weirdest verses in the Sermon on the Mount to understand when Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. And we say, yeah, I get that. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And you say, huh? See, when Jesus said these words, you have to remember the context. He's talking to Hebrew people who were, by and large, still in exile. Yes, they were in Judea, but the prophet said that the exile wouldn't end until all of the tribes came back, and all of the tribes never came back. Okay, And so they're still in exile, and they're very much aware of their exile. They're living under the boot of Rome. And if, that, if you're that, if you're, a, if you're a, a Jew living during that time period, and you're still in exile, and you have all these promises, what would, what would be going on in your head? Has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten us? They were waiting for God to remember. Think of the memorial offer 
the memorial offering. They remember waiting for God to remember his covenant. They were waiting for God to remember the salt of his covenant. And what does Jesus say? Little did they know Jesus was the fulfillment of all they were waiting for. And he says to them, you're the salt of the earth. It's like he's reminding them in that moment, you are the covenant people. You're the covenant people. And guess what? Salt can't lose its saltiness. It's a chemical compound. Something can't, salt can't become unsalty. It's impossible. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, you are the recipients of the promises of God, and God has not forgotten you. Which is why he continues in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, do not think I have come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And little did they know he was the fulfillment of all those promises. This will usher in a new covenant, the new covenant that was prophesied in the old, that was commemorated at the Lord's Supper. And think this. We think of the Lord's Supper and we say, well, the Lord's Supper, for those of you who have been in the Bible for a while, we say the Lord's Supper looks back to the Passover in Exodus, and it does. God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. He brought them into covenant, and then he gave them the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the memorial offering. And think about what the Lord's Supper pictures. They celebrated the Passover where Jesus rescues us from sin and death in this divine exodus out of, out of a spiritual Egypt. And then he gives us the Lord's Supper as a sort of grain offering, memorial offering for us to remember the work that he's done. And so all of this in the old is looking forward to the new, and all of this in the new is looking back to the old. And it's part of God's grand design. The Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, summarizes it so well. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. Why? Because God and sinners are reconciled. And so realize that all of this, these offerings are not some dry thing. This is about worship. It's about thanksgiving. It's a true thanksgiving meal. These are the rich truths that were most certainly on the mind of the early church when they celebrated the Lord's Supper because after all, they stopped performing offerings and sacrifices because they realized they had something better. And so there's three things. One, Realize that Jesus came to die because we are born at odds with God. We are born at odds with God. We are at enmity with him. We are his enemy. But while we were his enemy, Jesus died for us to pay for the full penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven and then we could be reconciled with our creator by faith by faith in Jesus and what he's done. And having received that, if you've received that, then there's three things that you can do. One, you can celebrate your acceptance because God the Father has heard God the Son, who is the high priest, and now he says, draw near. Two, you can celebrate the fact that God remembers his covenant, which is why Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and that I will come back. You belong to him. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the future inheritance that we will receive. 
And the third thing is that you can celebrate the peace that you have with God and with man because we were reconciled so that we can go and be a reconciler. And this is seen in Jesus and his church. And so the point is that God's people should be the most thankful people on the planet. Often we're not, though. Often we grumble. That just makes us like everybody else. And so we fight for thankfulness because we have all the reasons in the world to be thankful. But we, have to, we only will maintain that spirit of thanksgiving when we look to the cross. As Paul says in Philippians 4, as he also says in 1 Timothy, he says, uh, in, for, in Philippians 4, he says, I have found the secret of contentment, whether in plenty or in lack. Or in 1 Timothy, he says, I know, he says, uh, you know, godliness with contentment is better than wealth. It's great gain. He says, but if we have food and clothing, that is enough. For naked we came into this world, and naked we will depart. And so we should focus on being thankful for the right things. Let me pray for us. God, I know that, um, that some of these themes may be complex, especially for people who are new to the Bible. But your spirit is able to accomplish what the flesh cannot. And your word doesn't return void. God, I pray that we would be struck by your holiness. I pray that we would be struck by the fact that this is your work. It's always been your work. Somehow we try to act like it's our work. We thank you that you are a faithful God who is true to his covenant, true to his word, true to his promises. I pray, God, that that would make us thankful even in terrible things. I pray that we would catch ourselves when we grumble and complain about everything under the sun. I pray that we would remember that we have in Christ more than we could possibly ask for or imagine. That we were entitled to death, but instead of receiving death, we've received life and adoption, inheritance. Thank you, Father. Thank you that your plans are so much better than our own. I pray that you would minister to your people and that as we approach this Advent season, you would make us a people who are thankful for the incarnation above any other gift that we may receive. In your name, amen. Have a good week, guys. See you next week.